You are listening to The Interactome, a podcast by a group of young researchers who want to connect you to the world of science by sharing their stories and perspectives. Just in case their bosses are listening, they want to remind you that the opinions expressed here are their own. They also want to remind you not to take anything they say as medical or professional advice, as they are not doctors. Not yet, anyway. Stay tuned about that. And, without further ado, welcome to the Interactome. So for today's episode, we're going to be uh, talking about fish. We're going to talk about fishing, fisheries, and sea creatures, which I think is a fun departure from what we've talked about in the past. Um, and I invited today's guest. Uh, along with me uh, from the Interactome crew are uh, Maya. Hello. And Sarah. Hello. Hopefully at this point you know us, but uh, if you don't, I'm, uh, like I said, Sam. I'm a biochemistry uh, graduate student. Oh, and um, I'm Maya. I am a molecular and cell biology graduate student. And I'm Sarah. I'm going to be a medical student in about a month. Woo! That's exciting. Crazy. <laughs> and you have left us all and uh, run off to another part of the country. Well, you've left oh my the God. Uh, group of us that are back in Massachusetts. Sounds so dramatic. But... but no, now we... So now Interacto Media is like coast to coast. We have East Coast, Midwest, and West Coast. So. Yep. Just it's exciting. Um... And today with us is a uh, old uh, friend of ours from, uh, well, uh, I should say Maya and myself from high school, actually, who is a uh, marine biologist. Uh, so we have with us Jess Vio. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if you'd like to introduce yourself, give uh, the audience a little bit more about yourself because... This is your first time on here? Yeah. So, yeah, my name is Jess. Um, I kind of describe myself as an early career marine scientist. I have a lot of experience working with marine mammals in a lot of different contexts. I've um, studied them by taking photos of them. I've studied audio recordings of them. I've done a lot of necropsies, which are animal autopsies. Um, and I have also worked in marine mammal stranding. So... I have a big background in marine mammal research. I have a smaller um, background in fisheries research. I've done a few different projects, putting cameras on gill nets um, to document uh, how seals interact with them. Um, and I've worked as a technician for the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries as a fishery, uh, diagramus fisheries technician. Um, so I've got a little bit of experience in each part of what we're gonna be talking about today, which uh, probably makes me a good person to talk about it. Um, and I have some outreach and education experience. I spent some time as a park ranger doing education. Um, and I currently work for a girls science camp. So cool. And yeah, Jess, I guess like for more context, it would be cool to give us a little bit about like how you got interested in marine biology and fisheries science. That would be really interesting. I have always been an animal lover. Um, always been a nerd from the beginning, like <laughs> us all, I'm assuming. Um, I've just, I've loved animals and nature um, from a very young age. 
And not only do I love, did I love going outside and experiencing it myself, like I remember very vividly consuming a lot of like Animal Planet TV shows as a kid that really inspired me. And I got to see so many cool places that I was like, I need to go there. And um, so I, I always loved animals when I was a kid, like a lot of animal lovers, I wanted to be a veterinarian, um, which did not pan out, <laughs> but I'm very happy with my career choices. Um, and actually it's kind of funny. I, when I was a kid, I would watch the show called Whale Wars, which was about, um, the Sea Shepherds, which is a, a organization that is trying to stop, uh, Japanese whaling in the Antarctic. And I remember watching that and being so mad and just, I was furious. Like I was just this righteous little, like probably 12 year old that was like, <laughs> how could they do this? And I remember being like, I want to do something like I want to stop that. And that truly it's kind of silly, but that TV show made me consider like, do I want to be a marine biologist? And I kind of never let it go. So I'm living a lot of like 12 year old fantasies <laughs> right now. <laughs> I dimly remember that show. <laughs> it sounds intense. <laughs> I think 12-year-old you would probably be very proud of where you are right now. <laughs> I know. I think about that. It's kind of sweet. I think about that sometimes. I'm like, wow, I don't think she'd believe where I've gotten. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing that. <laughs> Isn't that like the nerd goal, though, to like get where your 12-year-old self yes. wants, wants to be? Exactly. <laughs> yes. Like... That's what all nerds want. <laughs> so, Jess, I have a question for you just to kick us off. Um, yeah. If you want to talk more about what exactly a fishery is, because I think, um, you know, as an American consumer, I have definitely eaten a lot of fish. But, you know, do I know where they come from all the time? Not really. And I think it'd be cool to talk about. So um, can you give us a quick background on what exactly a fishery is and why that's so important to the average person? Yeah, so um, very broadly, um, a fishery is, this is like the definition, is an operation or industry of catching fish and other marine species, not just fish, like lobster, crabs, or shrimp, um, and selling it. So it's, it's, a, it's directly economic um, in a way. It's, it's a fish stock or like a fish um, population is not necessarily a fishery. It has to be an uh, like a economically viable business in a way. Um, so if you've eaten seafood, you've encountered a fishery. We have fisheries here in the United States. You probably, if you live in a coastal area, you have probably fisheries around you. Even if you live in a region that um, sells fish from like you know, lakes, you have, that's a considered a fishery. Um, and there's international fisheries that are, can be much, much bigger in scale than a local small scale. Yeah. There's a lot of economic activity in the form of big boats and, you know, people doing a hard job. And a dangerous job. It's a very, it can be a very, very dangerous job um, and very difficult, which is why seafood can be so expensive. It's not, it's not easy at all. I remember one summer I was going sailing and I was reading the news and like a couple, couple weeks earlier, a fishing boat had actually sank right here where we were sailing. Yeah. I don't think like I, it was, I think it was relatively, like, I don't think anyone was seriously injured, but the boat was like, I think we sailed right over the boat. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh it was a little alarming. I was like, oh my gosh. Like there was a, I'd probably seen the boat before. It was not a small vessel, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a risky business being out on the water, um, which, you know, if you're ever around it enough, you, you, you learn that, you know, water's not something to mess with. 
Yeah, for sure. And I remember growing up, like my brothers and I would, I think this is like a program on Discovery, but I'm not sure, but maybe you guys have heard of Deadliest Catch uh, (laughs) for like Uh lobstering. And I was always like so stressed when watching that because it's like, yeah, like you were saying, Sam, the water is dangerous. Like the lobster cages are like huge and heavy. And I'm like, oh, wow, (laughs) it's really intense. Aren't they actually fishing Alaskan king crab? I think it's crab. I was like, it was yeah. some, some like lobster crab. But we do, crab. in Massachusetts, we do have like a fisheries show. It's, I think it's Wicked Tuna. Oh. And that's, um, a lot of them are out of Gloucester. So there is one like local to us, or to, to me. I got buzzed by their helicopter during that camp. Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh I got buzzed by the Wicked Tuna helicopter. So you can kind of surmise where I was doing that. But yeah. <laughs> Which... That's that's kind of freaky. Helicopters can be intense too, but yeah. Yeah. And do you guys remember this is like a little mini throwback to high school, but I remember we had to read that book about like lobsters and like their secret lives. Do you guys remember? Or is that just like my class? I don't remember. But, I, I think that was just our biology class. Okay, yeah. Because I remember like um, there was a summer reading we had to do on like the secret lives of lobsters. And it was like this very detailed book about like the biology of lobsters and I think it got into a little bit about fisheries activities if I remember but yeah it was really interesting I learned so much about lobsters from that book <laughs> yeah I just remember there was one chapter that like was not listed on the <laughs> summer reading <laughs> I didn't read it but it was like it was about like the mating habits of lobsters I don't know how I don't know why <laughs> I don't think high schoolers can I don't handle know the- that <laughs> I don't think we could have handled it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I actually read it, to be honest, which is a shame. Maybe there's like some saucy lobster. Oh, no. There, <laughs> I, I think we got into this a little bit, but so fisheries, there's a lot of like issues surrounding them, right? Like in terms of like we were talking about with both in terms of risk to people working in them, but also in terms of like how they're uh, regulated and how they interact with animals, right? Like you were talking about with like, to take it to, I guess, an absurd degree, like you were talking about with the whaling yeah. industry. But um, I think this is what you tend to focus on, right? So you want to go into more detail with that? or Yeah. So, yeah, I have a lot of experience with um, how marine mammals interact with fisheries from my different research experiences. The first time I encountered it on my own um, was well i mean truly the first time probably all of us count encountered it as children have you guys heard of dolphin safe tuna does that ring a bell yeah yeah, yeah. so <laughs> so um i i can't i don't know exactly when because it was before i think i was born um but they used to use dolphins as an indicator of where the tuna were to catch them so when they saw dolphins, they would set nets and inevitably scoop up a bunch of dolphins and kill them, which is called bycatch, um, when you're catching something that's not your intended species. So there was a big drive, big like conservationist drive to have dolphin-safe tuna where you're not using the dolphins to you know, indicate where the tuna are. So that's why like so I think there's even some tuna companies that have a dolphin as their mascot because it's like, it's dolphin-safe. Mm. So I think that's probably my first experience with marine mammal fishery interactions, but from a more professional standpoint, um, I was an intern at Shoals Marine Laboratory in 2018. Um, It is a amazing institution that has undergraduate courses and internships, and it is located off the coast of um, Southern Maine. 
and I was there taking photographs of um, seals. So there's, you know, there were seals that hauled out on a nearby island, and I took photographs of them to get population estimates and to um, get just gain more information on on what what was going on with the haul out. And one of the things we would see a lot were these things called entanglements. Um, and entanglements is it's generally any anthropogenic, so human-made material that's wrapped around the body of an animal. And it can be it can be any animal, but I mean I'm focusing really on marine mammals. And for seals, we saw we saw some different materials wrapped around. We saw um, one time we saw an aerobie frisbee, so it's a frisbee that's got a hole in the middle. Um, yeah, and so we saw an aerobie frisbee around the neck of a seal, and um, it probably got caught around the neck of the seal when it seal was younger and smaller, and then as it grew, it, you know, the seal got bigger, but the frisbee did not, and so it begins to cut into the fur and into the skin and then into the blubber layer. So it creates these really nasty wounds, um, and though there were some odd materials and unknown materials that we weren't sure what they were, you know, frisbee and then some other things, a lot of what we saw was netting, so fishnets. Um, and a lot of it was monofilament netting, which is like a very thin, plasticky type of net that's super, super strong and durable. Um, so that was kind of my, my first experience. And then I've moved on and did a lot of necropsies and I got to do, which are animal autopsies, and I got to do necropsies of entangled seals. So I got to see how the entanglement killed the animal and I was able to do necropsies of bicot seals. So I think I kind of brushed upon it, but so entanglement is the wrapping of human-made material around the body of an animal. Bycatch is the um, accidental catch of a non-target species. So if you are going out to catch shrimp in the Gulf of Mexico and you accidentally catch a bunch of random other fish, those other fish are your bycatch because you weren't trying to catch them and you just throw them overboard. But, you know, you were catching the shrimp and those were just, you know, the accidents that you accidentally killed. So it can be fish. It can be turtles. Turtles are like really, you know, are affected by bycatch a lot, but it can also be marine mammals. So, um... And I think, I don't know if I mentioned it either, but marine mammals include whales and dolphins. They include seals, um, true seals, which are the, are the ones they have on the East Coast where I live. Um, but also there's other types of seals called eared seals that are known as sea lions and furred, fur seals. Um, so they, so, you know, fisheries can affect marine mammals in a lot of ways. Jess, I had a quick question for you. So yeah. from your experience and what you've seen, um, is bycatch or entanglement more common? Um, as like, is there, do you find that one kind of like happens more than the other or is it like kind of the same? I think it's a big question mark. We, we really don't know. Um, so we have some data on bycatch because of a program called, um, again, I, everything I'm talking about is really New England, Gulf of Maine focused, because that's that's the only place that I've really worked, and that's where a lot of my experience comes from. But um, actually, everywhere where there's you know fisheries, there's an typically an observer program, um, and in New England, it's called the Northeast Fisheries Observer Program, and these are scientists that go out on fishing boats and. They record data on what's being caught, um, 
you know, they, they measure the fish to make sure that everything's up to regulation. And they also will record data if a seal or other marine mammal or anything really, again, a turtle, anything is pulled up dead, is bicaught. Um, so there is data from that, and there are fishermen that will report bicaught marine mammals if there's no observer around. There are fishermen that do that, but there probably are a lot that don't because it's a big hassle. They have to do all this paperwork. They, it's, it's probably a pain in the butt. And so there's, there, we, this is a kind of a, uh, I don't know what the word is. This is, I, we don't know this for certain, but there probably are some that will catch a seal and it's dead and they cut it out of the net and they just throw it overboard. And it's like, no one saw. So the numbers we have probably don't paint the whole picture. And with entanglements, we see a lot of entanglements where we monitor seals so at the Isles of Shoals, where I worked, we every summer they are they have interns that take photos and monitor the seals. So we have a good idea of how many seals are entangled there, approximately. Um, and there are people on Cape Cod that monitors the seals on the haulouts on Cape Cod. You know, there's some other islands in Maine that get monitored, but for the most part, there's a lot of spaces that aren't. You know, we're not watching the seals, we're not looking at them, we're not taking their photographs. So a lot more could be entangled. Um, it would be hard for me to say what happens more commonly because we also don't really know how it even happens, both entanglement and bycatch. We don't know if entanglement happens because there's some ghost gear in the water and they play with it and then it gets caught around their necks or if they're interacting with actively fishing gear and then breaking out of it because they're strong enough too. So it's really, it's really hard to say, but they're both major issues in terms of causing mortality in marine mammals. So I have a couple of questions from yes. that. So first off, you talk about like, if it gets, so I like a lot of, are there a lot of bicot animals that are bicot alive? Like I'm imagining you don't want to like, you're, you're, I'm just thinking from a practical standpoint of if you're catching fish, you're going to want the fish going into your cargo hold or your boat to be as fresh as possible. So you're not like, you know, you don't leave the net there long enough that you're killing the fish. You want that to happen more or less when it's on the boat. I'm thinking, just as someone who eats fish. I had fish sticks for lunch. <laughs> like, literally. Like, is it really common? Like, are there usually not live animals that get bycaught? Like, how does that happen? Yeah, so it kind of depends on what method you're using and then how long you leave the net there. So... It, it can be done where you bring up, you know, an entangled animal alive, um, but it it's often that they are dead. Um, so, for example, for, like, sink gill net fisheries, the, the, we call, how long a net is in the water is soak time, S-O-A-K, soak. Um, and soak time can be anywhere from a few hours, if you're in a really, I guess, high fish area, to 24 hours or longer. Um, so if a seal gets caught, you know, at hour five, it's not getting pulled up for another 19 hours and it's gonna drown. Um, there are some like kind of scary, crazy videos of like, I think some huge, it must've been in Alaska, like a stellar sea lion, like dropping on a fishing boat and alive and like 
really angry. Um, but for the most part, in in this neck of the woods, if, if a seal is being bicaught or if a dolphin or a harbor porpoise is bicaught, for the most part, they're being pulled up dead. Okay. And I, I guess that makes sense because the fish also don't need air. Yeah, I know. And so, like, I... One of the things I've done was I assisted a research project that was kind of a joint project between the Center for Coastal Studies, Marine Fisheries Research Program, which is a really cool organization in Provincetown on Cape Cod, and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, which is a very illustrious um, oceanographic institution in also in Cape Cod. And they put uh, cameras on gillnets to... Um, the goal was to document seal depredation and bycatch because we really don't know we don't know what the process of how this happens is so we don't know if there's a couple possibilities we don't know if a seal comes you know swimming by and sees the net and is like ooh there's fish in there i'm going to go eat those fish and that's called depredation when um you know a marine mammal or a fish will steal the food from out of a, a fishing net and they might go over there and eat the fish and then accidentally get tangled up. And then they either are not weak, not strong enough to break out or they are strong enough to break out. And then they have netting around their neck. Um, or we don't know if maybe they just swim through it because they can't see it. That seems unlikely, but like we just don't know. So that was the goal of the project. Um, and they were fishing for skate mostly, winter skate. And the winter skate would get caught. And, you know, we watched these videos for hours and hours. And it would be alive when they pulled it up. You know, they would be struck. Every once in a while, the skate would kind of struggle and try to get out of the net and just tangle itself more. But, you know, they would stay alive for a long time. But a seal just, you know, needs air and they need to come back up. And they're just unable to. I had no idea that fishnets were down that long. Like, I, I just assumed maybe a few minutes, but hours on end, I had no idea. Um, they can be. They can be. Yeah, it's different with different fisheries because there's just different methods. But with gillnets, they can just go out one day and put them out and then come back a day later, a couple days later, because it's just there, yeah. you know? Um, I did have a question, and... I apologize if this is slightly a tangent and also if it's not quite your area of expertise, but I want to hear your input on it anyway. Um, what are your thoughts on um, at least how it relates to the conversation we're having overfishing? Because I keep hearing that more and more um, as something that we should all be kind of educating ourselves on and looking out for. Um, so in your experiences, what have you kind of seen with regards to that and um you know, I think later on in the episode, I think we're going to get into some solutions about these kinds of things and what we can do. But um, yeah, I just want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's probably not 100% my area of expertise. Um, but I will say from even from my personal experience, because I also eat seafood, I'm a seafood consumer, I purchase it, you know, I'm supporting this like seafood economy. Um there are regulations put in place for United States fisheries. Um, you could argue with them. Some people don't like them, both fishermen and scientists and conservationists. There's, you know, people have different opinions about them. And there are closures if there's opinions that um, they do these like pretty rigorous stock assessments for each fishery each year. Um, 
some of them don't have enough data really to make an assumption. And there are a lot of fisheries that are closed across the country. Um, for the most part, I'd say if you're purchasing a, a seafood product from the United States, and even better, if you can know like what boat it came off of, if you know your fishermen, or if you purchase from a local fish, you know, they have um, these like fishermen co-ops that are like fishermen owned, which are really cool. Um, I would say that's the best bet in terms of overfishing. And there's certain foods, certain seafoods that are definitely better than others. Um, and I think part of that is doing some kind of consumer research. So I believe it's Monterey Bay Aquarium has this thing called Seafood Watch. And really quickly, you can look up like if you want to order at a restaurant, you're like, I don't know, is this good or not? You can look up, you know, what it is and they'll say it's sustainable or it's a little iffy or don't buy it. Um, but I would say in general, I would personally avoid international fisheries um like products from international fisheries because we just really don't know the regulations that they have and it's very variable um it's just a little bit more of like the wild west in terms of overfishing and unsustainable practices so even though there certainly are u.s fisheries that in my opinion would be considered unsustainable but i think it's kind of like it's up to you as a consumer to do a little digging Thanks. Yeah. No, that's really helpful. I had no idea there was a website too for that. So I'll definitely There's be looking that multiple. one up. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is like jumping ahead too much, but you mentioned one of the reasons why people may not report bycatch is there's just a lot of paperwork. And as someone who I personally am not a lover of paperwork, um, <laughs> as much as I am a scientist, uh, so is there like a way that they're trying to reduce kind of the workload it takes to report these sorts of things i don't imagine it has to be a complicated process in the sense of you could have just like someone import a tally or something to a, a website when they're done fishing just so that you have some number it's better than nothing and it's relatively easy yeah there might be and i maybe i should phrase that it's probably a multitude of factors that are causing the underreporting. there's also a general mistrust of scientists of maybe the observer program um there's actually a really great uh movie that just came out recently called coda um it won i think it won an oscar and it was set in gloucester and it was about a fishing family and there is an observer in it um and she is she's a, arguably a bad character she reports the the fishermen in are deaf and she reports them because they're deaf and she's kind of presented as this like bumbling character um which is probably how a lot of fishermen see observers um and to be fair these people you know fishermen like really know what they're doing they've been doing this a long time and then you have this person that's like hi, I'm going to be on your boat today and I'm going to be watching everything you do and I might report you if you do something wrong and I don't really know. Some of them too are like newer observers. So there's some mistrust and um, maybe bad blood that's also affecting the reporting. But I'm sure there's ways that it can be streamlined. I know we've talked about um, entanglement and bycatch in the case of seals, but are there yes. other marine mammals that this happens to, Jess? 
Yes, there are. Um, I probably will default. I, I it default to seals because I've studied seals a lot, and I they're a lot, thing I know a lot about. But the kind of like, especially where I am in the Gulf of Maine, the big one with like the neon flashing lights is the North Atlantic right whale, um, which you may have heard of. You may not have heard of. If you know anything about marine conservation, you've probably heard something about it. Um, but North Atlantic right whales are a large whale, so and they're a baleen whale, um, and they are the most endangered large whale in the entire world. Um, there's about 350 remaining, and yeah, there's not a lot at all, um, and they're rapidly declining in number, um, and a lot of them interact with fisheries. So there was a study um, that looked at scars on North Atlantic right whales who were alive, so they were alive, but uh, they found that 85% of North Atlantic right whales have been entangled once in their life, while 60% have had multiple entanglements. Um, so it is possible for them to get this entanglement off on their own or to be disentangled, but it's a lot of them get entangled unfortunately oh yeah and i don't know like too much about whales but is there something about um this kind of whale that like maybe explains why they get entangled a lot yes there is um so i kind of i said it earlier but they're they're called bail they're it belong to a group called baleen whales um, and in the whale, you know, it's a group called cetaceans, includes whales and dolphins. Um, and within the cetacean group, there's um, mysticetes, which are baleen whales, and odontocetes, which are toothed whales. So baleen whales don't have teeth like we have, but they've got these like long um, keratin plates that help them filter out krill or very small fish. Um, so other baleen whales include like humpback whales, blue whales gray whales, um, there's a lot of them and they're generally very large. Um, and right whales in particular use a method of filter feeding called ram filtration. So what they do is they open up their huge mouth and they just swim at either right at the surface or a little bit in the water column for miles all day long because they're feeding on these teeny tiny little zooplankton called copepods, which are just like tiny little microorganisms. And they're really big whales, so they need to eat a lot of them to stay big and stay fat and stay healthy. So they just have their mouths open all day long, swimming around, and unfortunately, if they're in an area with a lot of fisheries, which the Gulf of Maine has, there's a lot of rope in the water column. So with any nets or pots or traps, whatever, they have a rope that will attach to a buoy at the surface. And so that's how the fisherman knows, oh, that's my buoy, that's my trap, I'm gonna pull it up. And the, the right whales, because their mouths are open like all the time, they just swim right through, right through the, the rope and it gets caught in their mouths. It can displace their baleen. Um, it causes a lot of drag because they can carry the pots with them. Um, so yeah, they're carrying rope, they've got a buoy, they've got pots that are dragging behind them. So they're expending more energy just to go where they would usually go. And then sometimes it disrupts their feeding. So sometimes they're not able to feed 
while they're expending more energy carrying all this this gear along. So it's a common way that an entangled right whale will die is by starvation. Oh, I see. So, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. was Oof. not like the when we were speaking about like entanglement. That was not like the way that I thought a whale would be entangled. It's different for um, different types of whales. Like humpback whales can also get entangled in this way. They have a different kind of feeding um, where they kind of lunge. So they don't have their mouths open t- like 24-7 almost like right whales do. So they don't get entangled quite as much. And also the, the humpback whale population is a lot healthier than the North Atlantic right whale population. So when like one North Atlantic right whale, you know, dies of an entanglement, that's a really big deal because there's not many left at all. Why are there so few North Atlantic right whales to begin with? So they are called right whales um, from back in the whaling days. Um, they were they were literally the right whales to kill. Um, they're very fat and very buoyant, and they just hang out at the surface. And they're really slow. And like I said, they just cruise with their mouths open all day. They don't need to be fast. They're their prey are copepods, which are not going anywhere. And so they just sit at the surface, you know, really slowly. So if you're a whaling ship that started, you know, in the, um, in what is now North America, as early as the 1300s, um, you will see that and you're like, that's a really easy whale to harpoon because it's right there. It's not going anywhere. They don't really dive down, you know, like a humpback whale might. And they were just killed in large numbers. They also had a lot of blubber because they're, they're just, they're, they're highly, um, just high in blubber and so that was used to like use for lamps and candles and they had a lot of baleen which was used for other products like um even like corsets like the the ribbing in a corset used to be baleen which is interesting Hmm. back in the day so they were already they were already almost decimated um heading into i think the 20th century um so they were they've they've entered the modern era already on a bad foot so everything else just kind of piled up on top yeah and i guess it's kind of tough because here we have like you know the fishing industries and the fisheries like trying to catch fish to like sell to people but then you also have like the right whales that need to eat like the phytoplankton i'm sorry (laughs) like what zooplankton um that are like kind of also in the same area and like you know um I guess it's like two species just trying to make a livelihood. So I was kind of, yeah, yeah. So it's like kind of this like big seesaw is what I'm imagining it. And um, I'm curious, like, is there, um, are people like kind of actively trying to like maybe place fisheries in like another location so that right whales don't swim into um, the ropes as much? Is that like possible or like the best locations um, like the most optimal fishing locations are just like where the right whales um, happen to be. Yeah, it, there are seasonal closures in certain areas in New England. So for example, Cape Cod Bay is closed, I believe in the winter time for lobster fishing because there's a lot of uh, North Atlantic right whales in Cape Cod Bay in the winter because there's just high copepod aggregations. Um, It's difficult with the placement of the lobster pots. I learned something really cool recently, um, this idea of 
um, lobster ranching or lobster farming. (laughs) So the way lobster pots work is that for the most part, lobsters can get out, even like the big ones. I mean, I guess if they're huge, they can't get out. But for the most part, the lobsters can get out. So um, they put these pots down that have bait in them to attract the lobsters. And some of the lobsters will come and eat the bait and then they leave. And they get a little bit fatter, a little bit bigger. And then, you know, these typically lobstermen will stay in the same areas. It's kind of territorial. And so then they put the pot down again and the lobsters come in and eat the bait and leave. And whatever they pull up, like sometimes what, whatever they get in the pot when they pull it up is just what happened to be there at the time. You know, it wasn't really trapped in there. It just, it just happened to be there eating the bait at that time. So this idea of lobster ranching is that you're actually feeding the lobsters and making them bigger, making them fatter, and using your money and your bait to, to fatten them up. And so when you eventually catch them, you invested time and money and energy into the lobsters, um, even if you couldn't really see it happening. And so for some, these lobster territories were like passed down from generation to generation. So it's really difficult to say, okay, you just go move your pot Um, because they have been there for a long time. And there is a, you know, this kind of idea that I've been feeding these lobsters and they're my lobsters. And when it's, they're ready to be pulled up or when I happen to pull them up, like that's mine. It can't be someone else's. And so that's another issue. It's hard to just tell them to move. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense, especially if it's been something for years and years in a family over generations. Yeah, and I like what you said about like this seesaw of, of, of struggle because true beyond even just entanglement and bycatch and the restrictions placed on fishermen, there's a lot of threats to the like local small scale fishing industry that as we know it, like one of them is gentrification. Um, a lot of these um, working class towns that used to be fishing towns, Gloucester, um, Provincetown on Cape Cod, um, it they are being gentrified. It's harder and harder to live there, but there are people that still are fishing out of there. And it, if you can't make a living to support yourself where you are, you're not going to be able to fish. You know, if you can't live nearby, how can you fish out of there? So there's already like all these threats to these small scale industries that would truly be really a loss to like New England culture. Um, think about like lobster in the summertime, like that, if you've been to New England, if you've been to Maine, if you've been to Massachusetts, like that's, that's New England culture. And so it will be a huge loss both for these fishing families that have been around for a long time. And that's really all they've ever done. And to the culture of New England. Yeah. And I think like, that sounds kind of perhaps hyperbolic if you're not from New England, although all of us on this car call are, so maybe I'm making <laughs> things up. Um, <laughs> But, uh, like, my family, like, I grew up, uh, like, my family, we have, the grandparents have a house on an island in Maine, and, like, every 4th of July, we'd have a clam bake, and, was, yeah, clams in the name, but there were lobster, there was, like, that was, that is very much a cultural thing, like, I, that's something that, like, I, I recognized once I, you know, moved out, and, like, that, that's something that's, like, cultural to me, and so, like, the idea of losing that is actually alarming to me, like, I'm sitting yeah. here thinking, oh, that would be a bad thing to lose, Especially because, as far as I, I 
aware and how I've heard is like lobsters are a relatively sustainable fishery in terms of the actual lobsters themselves. So the idea of losing that thing that is a part of, I guess, my culture is it's a hard thing to grapple with. Yeah, even on the gentrification angle, like that's upsetting. And it's 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 culturally important, but I, I with lobsters especially, I can't emphasize enough how economically important it is. So I've I've heard different things. I've heard from some people that lobster is the most lucrative uh, fishery in the entire United States. And if you're not from New England, um, the lobster that we're talking about is American lobster. It's the lobster that turns red when you boil it. There's other types of lobster, like like Caribbean spiny lobster, and you just eat the tail of that. We're not talking about those. We're talking about American lobster that's really, especially nowadays, only found in New England and Canada. Um, and so it's very localized to this region, and it is prized in places all over the country and all over the world. So lobster and scallop are two of the most lucrative fisheries, and I think it kind of flip-flops between the two. But just also from an economic perspective, if you just got rid of that fish and said, nope, we're not doing that anymore, that would, like, for, for Maine especially, that would just oh my goodness, that would, like, cripple the economy. I'm still thinking about, like, you know, the right whales and, like, I guess endangered and threatened species in general. Like, I'm wondering if there's anything that, you know, people like us can do who are outside these industries or the general public. Is there anything that we can do to um, try to make the situation better? I think paying attention, for one, like, don't put on your blinders and be like, oh, this is too sad. I can't, you know, deal with this paying attention. I think um, there are lots of people working on technologies that might help protect North Atlantic great whales that don't involve closing down the lobster fishery. Um, and so, you know, some of them include, they're, they're called ropeless gear, um, which just means there are there is rope involved. It's so it's a little bit of a bad name, but it just means that there's no rope in the water column. So they don't have that like long stretch of rope that the white right whales just like get caught in their mouths. And their GPS um, typically they have like a GPS modem or something on it that will alert like the lobster boat. Oh, this is where my pod is. And they've got different technologies where, in theory, you press a button and either like a balloon inflates and it just comes up. Or there's a spool with the rope and a buoy, and then when you press the button, the spool unfurls and rises to the surface. Mm -hmm. So there are these technologies that they're testing, but the downsides is that um, they're really expensive right now. We don't really know how well they work, and so that's why they're in testing. But one thing that might help is if lawmakers would support funding for these pots as alternatives um, to the traditional lobster pot with a line. So, I mean, one thing you could do is contact your local lawmaker, whether that's a congressman or a senator or whatever, um, and, you know, talk about how you are concerned about North Atlantic right whales, but you want to keep the lobster industry. 
and that you think they should support legislation that will fund these experimental projects and maybe have grants and subsidies for, you know, say we find that the, the one with the balloon works really well and it's awesome, but it's still really expensive. So supporting grants and subsidies for lobstermen to be able to purchase them without spending their own money, because it's already a very expensive um, thing to do to go out and fish you know, you have to pay a crew, you have, you know, your fuel, the cost of the traps is, is substantial. And to have like a fancy, like, you know, highly technological trap would probably be really expensive. So supporting those kind of government um, supported, that government supported infrastructure, I think would really help in general, and also would help with fishermen support for a lot of these new ideas. Because in a lot of ways, Fishermen are used to doing things the way they've been done, and so there's some in, uh, there's some hesitation to try out these new things because it's like, well, what if they don't work, and then I lose out on my catch? So if the government could support, whether it's the state or the federal government, um, support that monetarily, maybe that could change some minds. Yeah, and this makes me hopeful from what you've described because, like. I don't know, it sounds like technology could be the way new innovations, like people thinking of creative solutions that would not damage like marine mammals, but still preserve like the industry. So that and all like makes me hopeful, but yeah, there is like the like financial challenge that you mentioned. Um, and I guess like on that side, I'm kind of curious about um, any other technological innovations. So, um, I know we were talking a little bit about like the seals getting entangled in bicot, and so um, are scientists and fishermen like thinking of ways to make those incidences less common? Yeah, there's lots of people. So, like I said, the team that I worked on, that I mean, really, I just got to assist with. It was not my project, but that was putting cameras on on gillnets. That was it's really step one. To, we have to understand how it happens before we can try to stop it. So there are teams working on understanding the problem better and then in theory then you know having new ideas for how to, how to fix it. Um, in other parts of the world, there's these things called like seal exclusion devices um, for like sea lions or fur seals. But that really works with like trawls where you have a net that you're towing behind a boat where it's actively moving. And in that situation, you have, you know, if the seal accidentally enters the trawl, there's a little escape, basically like an escape door that somehow only a seal can get through. I don't quite understand how it works, but that doesn't really work in, here in New England for the gillnet fisheries because it's just staying on the bottom. It's not moving and it's just a pain. It's, it's like a flat, you know, um, it's just a flat, piece of net that's out it's not a circle it's not something where they're getting caught in that way um currently there are these things called pingers pingers i, I don't know if i said that clearly but they just are these little devices that you attach to the net um and they make sound so a while ago again also i think before my time um harbor porpoise which is a as a type of cetacean it's just it kind of just looks like a really small dolphin they're very cute they were getting by caught a lot in nets in new england and so they started using these pingers um and it, it actually found to really work it seemed like 
the porpoises were just unaware that the nets were there and it was kind of accidental and with the pingers the num the rate of uh harbor porpoise bycatch has gone you know down a lot so that that was really great so they still put these pingers out and they also seem to work for dolphins as well um but they put out these pingers on these gill nets it's like awesome it's working great and it uh some fishermen claim that it it acts like a dinner bell for seals so while it you know will keep harbor porpoises away and dolphins away the seals hear it according to you know we don't know for certain but the seals may hear it and go ooh that's a net and that's got fish in it which means an easy meal for me and so they swim on over and they eat out of the nets which again is called depredation which is a pretty big problem for fishermen um, and either they swim away or maybe they then get by caught because again, they're playing around with the nets or entangled. Um, so there are technologies and there are, you know, there, that's kind of an older technology. They are working on new deterrence, which is what, you know, anything to keep these animals away from the nets. There's just not much currently in use right now besides the pingers. I wonder if, and maybe this is, I mean, I'm sure this has been thought of already, but I don't know if you know anything about it, because um, I know it's decently common, especially for endangered uh, marine mammals, to try to track them. So I don't know if any tracking technology has been used in conjunction with the technology that you mentioned in order to try to like avoid the exact areas that the animals are in. Yeah, I, there has been some tracking that has been done. It's just, it's so expensive. Yeah. And then you also have to like, with the seal, you have to sedate it and capture it and apply tags and all this stuff. The thing about seals is that it's be difficult just to avoid the area they're in because they are highly, highly mobile. They go very far distances all over the place. Um, so there are some tag data that shows juvenile, I think it was harbor seals, that were released on Cape Cod. And they like went around, like one of them went down to Rhode Island and then went back to Cape Cod and then went up to Maine and then went up to Canada and then went to Sable Island, which is an island that's even like further off Canada, and then like back to Canada and back to Maine, all in like 30 days or something. Oh my goodness. So <laughs> they, they, so the idea that seals are just in this one place is kind of silly. They're really not. Um, so even like, you know, we share our population with Canadian seals. We like there's a they are one group because with gray seals, especially they are just one big group because they don't they don't see borders like they're not like, <laughs> oh, this is the U.S. Canada border. I should turn around now because I'm a U.S. seal. Like they don't do that. <laughs> oh, I forgot they my just passport. Go up, oh no. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have my birth certificate. Oh darn, gotta go back. No, they just like, oh, fish are up there. I'm going there. So it's really hard to say. If you follow that logic, you'd have to like just shut down fisheries everywhere because they're, they're kind of everywhere. I had no idea their range was so extensive. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Far there here. are. They move a lot. <laughs> they are really impressive animals, and that was a juvenile, so that right. was not even an adult. They are. I did a project looking at harbor seal stomach contents, and these were stranded harbor seals, which means that they washed up dead. Um, and then we looked into their stomachs and were like, "What is in here?" And there was one that was a juvenile, 
and it stranded a few days later, which, and it did not die of human caused, it was not a human caused death, and it was not like an injury death, so there was something, you know, it probably had an infection or some kind of disease or something. And while, like, you know, a few days probably before death, it managed to um, go out to the continental shelf and eat a type of squid that's only found off the continental shelf um, and then come back. So, and then die. <laughs> so they are highly, highly mobile. I think that, like, they're pretty small. I mean, for this composed, compared to a whale, they're pretty small. Um, and they probably don't get enough credit for being as, like, all over the place as they are. They're all over the place. I don't know if we established this, but are they endangered or... So they are not endangered. Um, so there's two species. I probably should have given the rundown in the beginning, but there's two species that are year-round residents in New England. It's the harbor seal and the gray seal. Um, neither are considered endangered. Um, I don't have the exact numbers on how many there are, but gray seals have a very healthy population in Canada. And like I said, not all the Canadian seals come down to New England, but they're a good amount do. Um, and we have a breeding population here as well. They are not endangered. They were bounty hunted to extirpation in the um, late 1800s, um, which basically means that they were gone in this region, um, regionally extinct. Um, gray seals were uh, extirpated because Maine and Massachusetts in the 1800s saw a decline in their fish. And instead of looking at overfishing or anything else, they were like, you know what? We think it's the seals. It's definitely the seals eating the fish, and so we'll just kill them. So they had these bounty hunts where you could kill a seal, cut off its nose, or some places say flippers, but most places, most old-timey newspapers I've seen were nose, and bring it to town hall, and then you'll get something like five cents. Um, and so they did a really good job killing the seals, and they, the gray seals were just gone from this area, and harbor seals persisted in very small numbers. And only recently, in the 90s, did gray seals really begin to return. So they begin to return from Canada, um, and then they begin to repopulate historic breeding sites, which is kind of cool, because... They, these seals were not born in the United States, so how did they know to go to the places that 200 years ago seals were going to breed? But those include off Cape Cod, like Monomoy and Muskegon Islands. Um, they also include a few islands off of Maine uh, for gray seals. So they are not uh, endangered. They've done a pretty good job of repopulating, which is great. But um, because of that, they don't really get a lot of attention or funding um, which I think is a little bit of a shame because, um, in 2020, gray seals were declared by, um, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to be the most bicaught marine mammal in the United States, which means out of the entire U.S., Hawaii, and Alaska, gray seals are being killed in nets the most, and... Another caveat on top of that is that that's only the number that the observers are reporting. So remember, we said there's probably more being killed that we don't even know about. So they're not endangered, 
so they don't really get the same attention or funding or any of it that an endangered species would get. And rightfully so. Like, I think endangered species need the attention and the money to be able to protect them. But I think when you are, we as humans are affecting a population to the point that they are the most, uh, you know, killed in nets in the entire country, like, I think that deserves a little bit of attention and a little bit of, you know, awareness. But um, it just hasn't really happened yet. (laughs) I was going to ask about, like, you know, I think you raise a good point with if gray seals are the most killed in the U.S. Sure, it may not be an active problem now, right? It may not be as concerning as the right whale becoming closer to extinction. But I think, you know, if the right whale um, becomes extinct and then the gray seals become more threatened... You know, if we do lose those animals from the community, there's going to be um, food chain effects, right? And that those would also affect us. So there would be those secondary effects that I think we don't really think about all the time. And so I just wanted to hear your expertise on that. Like, what effects could we see? And um, yeah, I mean, because these are things that I think we should all be thinking about. Yeah, yeah, that's a wonderful question because I think some people see like whales and dolphins and seals is just like really cool and cute. And it's like, oh my God, like, you know, you see a seal, come on, you see a seal and you're like, that's so cute. Or you see a whale on a whale watch and you're like, oh my God, that's amazing. (laughs) Like, it's just exciting. They're they're what we call charismatic megafauna. Um, In the like marine science world, you know, I get a little teased for studying charismatic megafauna from like the crab people or like the (laughs) snail people. but they're really, really, like, really, really important. So they, um, a lot of them are mesopredators. So that's what seals are, which means that they're not the top, top of the food chain, but they eat a lot of things. So they eat a lot of fish, they eat squid, they eat a lot of different things. So they're really, really important nutrient cyclers. So they, you know, consume food and then they, you know, will go poop somewhere and it fertilizes. Um, And the same with whales. Whales are really, really important nutrient cyclers, especially ones that feed like closer to the bottom and then come up and poop. They like fertilize the entire water column, um, which is really, really important for, you know, we have the plankton that are there and the fish that eat the plankton and the fish that eat the fish and then the seals that eat the fish and then the sharks that eat the seals. So it's, they, they play a really important role in the ecosystem and there's actually some people trying to determine like an economic the economic benefit for each individual marine mammal so um there's one i I cannot remember off the top of my head but there's one that um scientists that looked at the the economic benefit of like one humpback whale and it was something in the range i'm totally um guessing off the top of my head or remembering but it was something in the range of like a million dollars from uh-huh. from from nutrient cycling, from tourism, people that go to see whales, um, from all these benefits. And so a- as a part of that, whales, dolphins, you know, pinnipeds, all of these marine mammals are are federally protected, which is why also it's it's kind of a big issue because these are federally protected animals. But in 1973, the Marine Mammal Protection Act was passed. And it's a really kind of cool piece of legislation because it was the first um, 
law that used ecosystem-based management as their approach to the to the protection of these marine mammals. So they were not protected because they're really cute or they're just like really cool. They were protected because scientists recognized the ecosystem benefits that they provided. And if they didn't protect them, they were worried that there was going to be large numbers of them gone, which would then result in, in uh, weaker ecosystems, worse fisheries, which then affects the economy. Um, so it was really it's really a groundbreaking piece of legislation. And so since then, marine mammals have been protected. But again, it's not because they're cute. It's because they're they are cute, but they're also really important. Thank you, Jess, for uh, coming on the show. Uh, that was really interesting. Uh, it was great to just kind of reminisce about fish for a second there for me, um, which is a very strange sentence, but uh, it was definitely a good time. Um, this was very, uh, very interesting conversation. I know I learned a lot. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, Jess, um, is there anything, any like final words or... Um take-home messages that you'd like our listeners to take away? Yeah. Um, well, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun nerding out um, with old high school friends and, and Sarah. Um, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> new friends. New friends. <laughs> new friends. New friend. Old friends yeah. and new friends. Um, but yeah, my kind of my big take-home message is I, I kind of talked about it a lot, but I, I think we need to pay attention when humans are, are causing a problem in the ocean or in the world, really. I think we need to pay attention. Um, And I think with collaboration, communication between scientists and fishermen and conservationists between these groups, like we can come to solutions that work for everyone. I I don't believe in a solution that will hurt one group. I I think that we can, it's 2022. Like we're all pretty brilliant. We have a lot of amazing technology. Like let's, we can figure this out. Um, So my, my take message, we can coexist. You just gotta, we gotta work together, um, which I'm hopeful that we can do. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that is kind of the, the goal of this project too, the Interactome as a whole. Um, this is our 10th episode actually, so that's really exciting. <laughs> and if uh, you want to um, kind of learn more about science and how people are uh, interacting with each other and collaborating to solve uh, the complicated problems that we're facing today, um, yeah, first off, I encourage you to you know subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. I'm assuming you know how to find podcasts if you're listening to one. Uh, so you can also follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are at the Interactum. On Instagram, we are Interactum underscore media. And you can also follow us on Facebook and go to our website at interactomedia.org. So thanks for listening and uh, hopefully tune in next time. Uh, we uh, release episodes hopefully every uh, third Monday of the month. So uh, tune in in a month and see what we've got going then. Mm-hmm.